Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get into Titus. Father, Lord Jesus, we know that you're faithful. We know that you are good, that you are loved, that you trust us, that you love us rather, that you went to the cross for us. We know that you've given us your word. And Lord, so many things about you, we just need to understand more. There's so many questions that we might have, so many things that we need you to make clear to us. Lord, I just pray this morning as we study your word, your expectations of your leaders would be clear. I pray that you would show us what you require. Lord, for it's very different than what the world would say. Lord, I pray this morning you would open our hearts to hear what you might have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to continue with our study through the book of Titus. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 16, and we're going to be taking a look at the characteristics of a pastor or a leader, a godly leader in the church. If you've ever applied for a job, you know part of the requirements is they look at uh, what is, you know, you, you have the job description, then you have the requirements that you have to meet to be eligible for the job. So essentially what you're going to see this morning are the requirements to become a pastor or to become not only a pastor but a leader in the church whether it's a, on the board or an elder some churches call it deacons whatever whatever you whatever title the church might give it these are the requirements that Paul is writing to Titus to say hey this is what I want you to look for in leaders now I know that as I talk to you and say hey I'm about to teach you what's required of a pastor some of you guys go well I'm going to get out my pen and see how you're doing I'm going to check, check the, oh, he's got that one. Oh, he doesn't have that one. Oh, he needs, he needs to work on that one a little bit. I encourage you to do that, not only with me, but with any other pastor, because we are held to a standard here that we should be measured with. Now, if you say, well, I don't think you're meeting that one, I invite you to come talk to me about it. We'll talk about it, we'll discuss it, and we'll come to some sort of agreement. And if, in fact, you're right, it would be my duty to step down as a pastor. Now, I can tell you this morning, as I stand here, I believe that I meet these, past, these, these requirements or I wouldn't be standing here. I will tell you that pastors, leaders, we're not perfect. We're people. We make mistakes. These are, these are requirements that, as you see, are going to be very, very strict, very, very hard to meet, and we do our best to meet them. So there has to be a little bit of grace involved, but they are requirements. They're not suggestions. Now, I also know, for those of you that aren't going to be grading me, the others of you might look and go, well... I'm not really a church leader, don't intend on being a church leader, so it's nap time for the next 45 minutes. I hope you rest well, but I will wake you up, I promise. I'm going to call you out by name. No, I won't do that. I would encourage you not to do that as well, because when you look at church leaders, when you look at pastors, all they really are, all we really are is mature Christians. So the characteristics that are going to be spelled out here are things that Jesus demonstrated. It's things that should be being developed in all our lives. It's something that you should be looking at and going, yeah, I, I need to work on that area of my life. There's something wrong there. Or you might look at some se section and go, the Lord's changed me. I used to be this way, and now I can see the fruit of the Holy Spirit playing out in this role of my life. So let's pick up in verse 5. Uh, and as the Apostle Paul instructs and empowers Titus to lead the churches there on the island of Crete. Verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, 
not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Seems easy, right? No, no problem. These, these, are, these are characteristics of a pastor, of a church leader. The Apostle Paul has left Titus in Crete. The church there is a series of group of new believers spread throughout the entire island. They're probably meeting in church homes as home Bible studies. And Paul has instructed Titus. He says, Titus, I need you to do two things for me. Number one, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking. And number two, I want you to appoint elders, appoint overseers in every city there. And by telling Titus to set things in order, he's implying that things are out of order. Last time I taught, I shared that word for set in order. It's a medical term used to take a broken bone, used to describe a broken bone that has been broken and displaced. You set it in order by realigning it. You do that so that it can continue to be productive and continue to produce good things. If your leg gets broken, you want it set so that you can walk on your leg again. If you don't set it in order, what happens? It will become lame. It will be a, it'll be a sense of a burden to you. It won't operate the way that it was intended to operate. So he's implying that things are out of order. There's many new believers here on the island, and they needed to be taught, and they needed to be discipled. And to do this, Paul says, Titus, I need you to appoint some elders. I need you to find some men, some leaders in every city, an elder or a bishop or an overseer, whatever title you want to give them. I need you to find these guys. But don't just pick anybody, Titus. These elders, these leaders, they have to meet certain qualifications. There needs to be certain characteristics in their lives. You see, Paul knows that without strong, godly leadership, the churches in Crete, they would fail. They would fall apart. They would be eaten up by the Judaizers, by those teaching false doctrine. After all, it was Paul's pattern of ministry. He would lead men and women to Christ. He would nurture them in their faith. He would give them the endurance of an eternal hope and provide them with spiritual leaders who could guide them into further discipleship with the Lord. When it comes to spiritual leadership within the church, Paul gives very specific instructions on who to pick or the type of man to be chosen. Leaders in the church never or should never be chosen just because of their education or because of their lack of education or because they contain a seminary or they have a seminary degree or a doctorate degree or whatever degree. They should never be chosen simply because of their natural gifts, because they speak well or maybe they don't speak well or their spiritual gifts for that matter. They shouldn't be chosen by the amount of money they give to a church. That's not, what, that's not one of the requirements that we're going to see. They shouldn't be chosen by the amount of time they volunteer or even how long they've been at a church. Have you seen a church where the people have been there forever and they're, they're the ones leading the church simply because they've been there forever and no one else can get in there. No one else with new vision or new insight is allowed in because it's their thing and they've done it the same way they're always gonna do it. They should never be chosen for these things. Instead, the Apostle Paul says, Titus, I want you to look at the man's character. I want you to look at his family. How's he leading his family? And I want you to look at his lifestyle. What kind of person is he really? Can you imagine if these qualifications were applied to a CEO of a major corporation? I mean, think about this. 
These are, these are personality characteristics. When they look for a CEO in a major corporation, what are they looking for? They don't want this. They want someone who doesn't spend time with their family so they can spend more time at work. They want someone who's going to step on people to get the job done. They want people who are hungry for money so the company can make more money and appease the shareholders. Not in the church. Not in the church, Paul says. Paul says we're looking for a different kind of person. We're looking at their character, their families, and their lifestyle. And the first characteristic he lists there, he says, find a man that's blameless. And the word literally means nothing to take hold upon. It means you can't find anything wrong with his life according to the scripture. It doesn't mean that I don't like him, I don't think he makes good jokes. It means when I look at the scripture, when I see his life, he, I don't see anything in his life that is contradictory to the scripture. Nothing to hold upon. It implies there's nothing somebody can blame you with. Nothing that they can blame you with that would disqualify you from ministry. Now this is kind of unique. Because as a pastor, I have to ask myself, am I blameless? Is there something that they could disqualify me for? And I can answer to you, no. But then I also have to ask you, is there something blameless? Is there something that you know of me? If there is, I encourage you to come speak with me. But here's the idea about this. It's important to note, this is not just what a man thinks of himself. This is what other people get to look into their life and see. Because I could look at my life and say, well, I'm perfectly blameless. And you could go, oh, no, you're not. No, no, you're not. Let me tell you why. Because of what you did to me or what you said to me or what, whatever happened, you could say that. But the idea is that the pastor should be able to say, I'm blameless. And the people should go, you're right. We don't have anything to blame on you. There's, there's nothing. Again, please don't. We're not talking perfection here. But what we're talking is, is, is an overall totality of a lifestyle that there's nothing that, to blame on somebody. And secondly, Paul mentions this one. He says, the husband of one wife. Now, this is confusing in Christianity. People come up with all different kinds of things. Uh, the language here specifically indicates this is, and I think the best way to say it, is a one-woman man. It's a one-woman man. It's a man. It doesn't mean that he has to be married. But it's a man, if he is married, he's faithful to his wife. And I think it's important both outwardly, both publicly, both physically, but also inwardly. And let me just kind of pause there for a moment. It's possible for a man to be faithful to his wife outwardly, but not be faithful to his wife inwardly. You understand what I'm saying? If there's a man who's filled with lust, always lusting after other women, always chasing other women, maybe he doesn't do anything wrong on the outside, but his inside is always doing that He's not qualified according to what Paul is telling Titus. He's not the husband of one wife. He's not a one-woman man. His internal, because what did Jesus say? If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So it's not that. It's not that. Now, sometimes people say, well, if I've been divorced, they look at this, this scripture and they say, well, I'm the husband of one wife, I've been divorced and remarried, uh, does that preclude me, does that circumstance preclude me from being a man, a leader, a pastor in the church? Maybe the answer to that is it depends on it depends on a lot of things. I don't think it's a it's always a yes or no answer. And let me give you an example. If you have a young man who gets married, say at at a young age, at 18 years old, and for whatever reason the marriage doesn't work out, and, and they ends up getting divorced at 19. At 25, he becomes a Christian. He spends the next 10 years serving the Lord. At age 35, now do you think that what he did back at 18, the mistake he made before he became a Christian, should disqualify him from being a pastor? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, on the other hand, I think if there's a man who's serving in the church, he's part of a church, he's married, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he has an affair, or, or not even, I won't, I won't even use that example, uh, for whatever reason, him and his wife can't get along, uh, they, they get divorced, and now they both go on, to di they change different churches, and all of a sudden now he wants to be a leader in that church, I don't think that's, I think he's disqualified from that. I don't think he can do that. 
You know, I think so what, I, what I'm kind of saying is there's, there's a lot of little things that have to be determined before someone is completely disqualified from ministry. If, you know, the Bible, the Bible gives specific examples where divorce is allowed, where there's, where there's a reason for it. It's accepted. It doesn't have to occur. Remember, God only allows it because of the hardness of man's heart, but he gives a divorce where it's allowed. So I think in some of those cases, I don't think this scripture precludes someone from being a leader or even a pastor in the church. I think you have to look at the specific circumstance and determine what happened, why it happened, what his role in it was, and all of those things as well. But I also think there is situations where a divorce could preclude somebody from being a pastor or a leader in the church. Hopefully that's not too confusing for you. Hopefully you got my heart behind it. And if you have questions, I'll be glad to sit and answer them later, especially at the picnic. Thirdly, Paul mentions having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The word for dissipation means behavior that shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of your actions. Selfless deeds, reckless deeds, recklessness. If children are behaving in that way, they are not coming under the authority of their father. Insubordination means rebellious or disobedient children. It's real simple. A man who cannot spiritually and morally lead his own family is not qualified to lead a group of people as a church. If you want to know the type of influence that a man's going to have on a body of believers, you can get a good glimpse of that by looking at the influence he has on his family. How's his family? How are they doing? Are they following the Lord? Are they not following the Lord? Are they, do, do they, do they, is, he, is he a different person at church than he is at home? Is, is there something in his life that you know, he, he always acts that way behind the pulpit, but at home we know the real dad. You know, or does he really know, do they really know, is, is, do they understand this? You see, it doesn't mean that, also, it doesn't mean just because a man may have a, an adult prodigal son, just because a man may have an adult prodigal daughter that's not following the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean it disqualifies him. If he's disqualified, if they're in his household, but it comes a point where everybody has to choose for themselves. If a son or a daughter chooses not to follow the Lord and he's out of the household, I don't believe that it disqualifies the pastor or the man in leadership. However, and I've had this conversation with my kids, if they were to become, uh, be, become reckless, become insubordinate, become where they're not under my authority, that would disqualify me as being a pastor. I believe according to the scripture, I would have the obligation to say, I'm sorry guys, I'm, I, I don't have my family in order, therefore I can't keep a church in order. Isn't it interesting the things the Lord looks at to show the character and the heart of a leader as opposed to what the world looks at. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, Paul put it this way. He said, one who rules his own house well. Leaders in the church should be people who rule their own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Makes, it, makes perfect sense to me. As we come into verse 7 there, Paul uses the phrase for a bishop. And most commentators, most Bible scholars, and I agree with them, is that this is the same office. In other words, he's using a synonymous word. It's the same word, different words, same meaning. They're referring to the same office of an overseer in a church. And Paul again mentions they should be blameless, specifically as a steward of God. Blameless, we already talked about it. As a steward of God, uh, it's interesting, the word steward. What's a steward? Are you a steward? Am I a steward? Of course we're stewards. But what is a steward? A steward, it's, it's, it's... a steward doesn't own anything. A steward has been given something that they're in charge of that they have to oversee. Now consider this for a moment. 
If I'm a steward of God, I've been given things by the Lord, but who do they belong to? They belong to the Lord. In my finances, who does my finances belong to? The Lord. Who does my house belong to? The Lord. Who does the people in the church belong to? The Lord. I'm glad you're his problem and not my problem. No, no, don't take, don't take offense to it. He loves you more than I do. But I'm called to be a steward, which means I have to be faithful to the things that he's called me to do. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, the elder must never say, this is mine. All that he has comes from God, and he must be used for God. His time, possessions, ambitions, and talents are all loaned to him by the Lord. You consider that for a moment, that your time is a gift from God. Do you know how much time you have left? Do you know when it's going to run out? You don't. Every moment, every day is a gift from the Lord. You don't have a, you don't have a measure of when that time is going to end, and neither do I. Your talents, the things that you're good at, have you considered using them for the Lord? You say, Rob, well, I can't sing. We don't want you to sing if you can't sing. But maybe there's something else that you can do that would benefit the Lord and bless the Lord and bless the church somehow. Have you ever considered using these things for the Lord? Because you're only a steward of them. Now, specifically, as a pastor, as a leader, I need to see myself, I need to be a steward. Next, Paul mentions that a leader in the church should not be, what does he say, self-willed. The idea behind self-willed is that someone is, I I like that, it's kind of like the two-year-old complex. I want it my way. I want it now, it's got to be my way, and it's the only way. Someone who is arrogant, not wanting, uh, doesn't want people's thoughts or suggestions. It's just, it's my way or the highway. I'm not willing to hear anybody else. I'm not willing to talk to anybody. That's it. That shouldn't be the heart of a pastor. Now, understand something. I want, to hear your atten- I want to hear your comments and your suggestions, but understand, I might not follow them, but I still want to hear them because they help me make decisions that I have to make. As a pastor, I don't, I don't, I don't say, no, I don't want to hear what anybody has to say in the church. No, I, I value your insight and your wisdom, but I still have an obligation to follow what the Lord leads me to do. But, but I, I can do that better if I have an open relationship where you guys can come to me and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered that? And I might say, no, I haven't. Thanks for the, thanks for the insight. Please don't get offended if I don't follow it. It doesn't mean it's not good insight. It's just not the direction the Lord seems to be leading at that time. He also says there a leader should not be quick-tempered. And the word there in the Greek, it actually refers not to a out, sudden outburst of wrath. What it refers to is a more settled state of anger uh, over and opposed to, opposed to a, a flash of anger. It's something that's it's, it's it's a settled state of anger. It's a, you ever met an angry person? They're always angry. They're always complaining. And usually the angry and complaining tends to go together sometimes, but they're always angry. They're, think of it as bitter. There's just, there's just this settled state of anger and bitterness in their heart. It's not necessarily an outburst. It's just this, it's kind of, it's kind of settled in their personality. The pastor, the church leader should not be quick tempered in that way. Now, let me just be clear. There is such a thing as righteous anger and we we talk about it and you hear about it in the scriptures righteous anger is against sin the target of righteous anger is going to be against sin it's what jesus displayed when he overturned the tables in the temple it was he over he was angry against what the what was being done not the people unrighteous anger has the person as the focus i'm mad at you not at necessarily the sin there's a there's a difference there 
You know, when you're mad at the person, it's not righteous. When, 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 when someone is doing something and there's a sin in someone's life that's corrupting them and eating in the way, you can get, there's a righteous anger that happens against the addiction that an addict might have by his parents because they know what it's doing to this life. They're, they don't like the addiction. They don't like the drug, but it's not the anger. It's not necessarily against the person or the, the wife or the daughter or the husband or the son. But he also says something there. He goes on. Another easy list, right? No problem. Just check them off as you go. He says, not given to wine. And this is one of those questionable ones. It's, it's a debate among Christianity. I've listened as church of, have, churches have advertised beer in the Bible, brews in the Word, and things where you can gather in a bar and, and we're going to have a Bible study together. But here Paul tells Titus that you shouldn't be given to wine. And what this, and, and, and you guys know that I, I like to dig a little deeper into the words. What does the word mean here? And here's what it means. In this passage, this word, these words refer to a person who habitually drinks too much and has become a drunkard. So a pastor, a church leader should not drink too much to where they've become a drunkard. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says bishops and overseers should not be given to wine, but he says that a deacon should not be given to much wine. So this is that battle that we have in Christianity. Well, as a Christian, can I drink? Can I, can, I have a, can I have a beer once in a while? What about a glass of wine with dinner? T- tell me, Rob, what, what does it say? Listen, the Bible doesn't preclude a Christian, a follower of Christ, from ever having a drink, a glass of beer, a glass of wine. Drunkenness is forbidden. But here's my argument to you on that. And I'm not saying that you have to or not. That is your choice you get to make. But here's what I think. Why do, as Christians, why do we want to struggle with taking in a substance that causes damage in so many lives and people around the world. Why, why do I want, is it, now I'm not even talking about pastor, I'm talking as Christians. Why do I want to fight for the right to have a drink if I know that there's people around the world, their families are being crushed, there's alcoholics, there's things that it's doing to people, there's drunk drivers, there's people that are being hurt and killed, and I, and I need to fight for my right to be able to ingest a little bit of this stuff. You say, Rob, you don't, you're missing the point. You don't understand. I work all day. I have a hard day. I like to come home. I, have, I like to have, I, I like, it helps me relax. Well, I would ask you this. Why do you need alcohol to relax? Why can't you relax? Why can't you relieve your anxiety in God's word? Why can't you set your heart on him? Why do you need the beer or the wine to do it? Again, it doesn't preclude you from doing it. I'm just asking you, is that the best way? Is that the best way? Or is there a better way to say, you know what, I, I, I think I need this. I need it to socialize. I need it to loosen me up a little bit. I need to have a little bit of fun. I haven't had a drink in years, and I have more fun now than I ever had. I don't even have a hangover anymore. It's great. I can be up till 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't wake up with a headache anymore. I know what that's like. But let me be clear on one other point. For a pastor, for a leader in the church, as a pastor, as an elder, I don't think there's any place for you to consume alcohol. I don't think it's ever should be a, 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 it's never allowed. There's no reason for it. And, and here's why. One, it could cause a brother to stumble. What would you guys think if you saw me coming out of the store with a beer in my hand? I, I won't even go. Rebecca called me one day. She said, will you go into Martin's? I need some wine for cooking in the, the liquor store next to Martin's. I don't know. Is it still there? I don't even know if it's still there. It was a while back. She said, will you go in and get some wine? I said, I'm not going in there. And she goes, why not? I said, because I know the time I walk out of there with that brown paper bag in my hand, there's going to be people in our church that are going, what's he doing with that? And I'm going to have to explain, no, it's just for cooking. And they're going to go, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, sure it is, Rob. No, I don't want any part of it. 
I don't need it, you know. So the stance as a church, as a Christian, you can indulge in that if you choose. But I would really challenge you and say, what's the need for it? What's the need for it? Is, is there something else that you could do? And I know the last thing that you say, well, I like the taste of it. So great. Enjoy it. That's entirely up to you. That's your, that's your freedom that you have. You can do that if you choose. Next one, he lists there. He says, not violent. Now, you would think this goes without saying, wouldn't you? I mean, this, this would probably be a job description for most places, not violence. And, and we th- certainly it's referring to physical violence. But can I let you know that this also refers to verbal violence you see there's physical violence with your hands and your feet and striking and punching but don't you know there's also verbal violence that can happen someone who's violent with their words you know the scars of a physical fight will heal rather quickly but do you know the scars of a verbal altercation can be damaging for life because once it's said it can't be taken back you can say i didn't mean it then why did you say it I didn't really mean it. Yes, you meant some part of it or it wouldn't have come out. Sometimes it's this verbal violence that can affect our lives much more than physical violence. It's what Paul's referring to. A leader in the church should not be violent physically, but they also should not be violent verbally. Next, he says, not greedy for money. Not greedy for money. Again, this should be obvious. Church leaders have a right to earn a living. There's nothing wrong with a pastor who is paid by the church. But his purpose for pastoring should not be for the paycheck. Now, most of you guys know I have never taken a paycheck from Calvary Chapel Cumberland. Uh, The last 10 years that I've been doing this, it's been, I I won't tell you that I've been doing it for free. I've been getting paid very well. I'm storing it in heaven. I I do what I do because the Lord's called me to do it. I do it, but but there's nothing wrong with the pastor that says, you know what, I I, I don't have a business like you do on the side. I, I I have to support my family. There's nothing wrong with the church supporting a pastor. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when the pastor's doing it for the paycheck. I want a bigger church that's a bigger paycheck. It's better benefits. It's, I want something more out of it. It becomes all about the paycheck, not greedy for the money. A pastor who only works for a paycheck, he's a hireling. He's a hireling, and he's not someone that's going to successfully lead the people. He also says here a leader in the church should be hospitable, uh, entertaining people. He says a lover of what is good. His heart should be, leaders, their heart should be on focusing on what is good, not running after what is evil. He says sober-minded. I like this one too, sober-minded. It means you're able to think clearly. Someone who thinks things through without simply reacting on emotion. You see, sometimes somebody, well, at some point in life, somebody's going, going to offend you, right? Have, have you guys ever been offended by somebody, something they've said or something like that? It's going to happen, okay? Do you think through your response or do you just simply respond out of emotion? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You see, a leader in the church has to be at a point where he's, he's able to say, you know what? I'm going to think this through. If I respond this way, it's not going to produce the, the repentance or the re- restored relationship I want. It's just going to produce a fight where we're going to have a verbal altercation where we're going to become violent with one another even if we're just yelling at each other. That's not what I want. You see, the, 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 they must be, leaders must think, they must be sober-minded. Now, that doesn't mean that a pastor or a leader has to be boring. It doesn't mean that he can't make a joke. It doesn't mean that his, his sense of humor can't come out or that he has to be solemn or somber. It just suggests he knows the value of his words. It knows the value of what he's going to say. And in no way will he cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior. Next, he says, the leader 
must be just. How am I doing on my report card, by the way? We're going to set appointments later. You can talk to me about all this stuff. No. Leaders must be just. It means being in accordance with what God requires. You should look at a leader's life, and you should be able to look at the word and say, he's living what he's preaching. I see it in his life. His family, I see it in his kids, I see it in his wife. I see he's, he's someone who sticks by his word. He practices what he preaches. Next, it says a leader should be holy. I like this one too. It means unstained. A leader should be unstained. The root meaning of the word holy is literally, it means they should be different. Different than the world. Christians are different from lost sinners because we are new creations in Christ. Our lives should look different. The moment you come to Christ, there should be a change in your life. You should begin to change and become less like the world and more like Christ. The church leader should be, have matured in that process and his life shouldn't look like the rest of the world. It should be something different. I read a story, I read an article last week, and, and this has nothing to do with the Calvary Chapel. But I read an article of a pastor about, I'm going to estimate about four years ago, maybe a little bit less, he, fed, he was a pastor of a church nowhere around here. Uh, nobody you guys would know. He was a pastor of a church and he had two affairs uh, and he was disqualified from ministry. As a result of that affair, his, he was divorced. Uh, his wife is no longer with him. Uh, and now, four years later, he has a new wife. He's moved to a new location and he's about to start a new church. I have a problem with that. He's stained. You know, it would be different if he had restored the relationship with his wife and his family was intact and the Lord had done a work there and now they can go testify to look what the Lord's done. But just to get a new wife, a new family in a new town and start a new church just because someone is a, a good teacher, he's stained. He's not qualified in my book. It, it, doesn't, it, it shouldn't be. But yet people will follow. It says a leader in the church must be self-controlled, in control of themselves. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. I like it. Paul says, Titus, I want you to appoint leaders in our churches that we've established here in Crete that hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to God's word, not swayed by the things of the world. I want them to do so with sound doctrine. I want them to have their doctrine built on the word of God. And with that doctrine, with that word, they're going to be able to exhort. And they're also going to be able to convict. They're going to be able to encourage, but also be able to rebuke those who contradict the word of God. Those who come against God's word. Luther's, Martin Luther said, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. You see, a church leader has to be able to teach and nourish and share and comfort, exhort, but he also has to be able to protect and defend. So when someone comes in, they say, that is not the truth according to God's word. That is not, that you are not going to do that in our church. You are not, it's not allowed. That is not as in the scriptures. It's not going to happen here. He has to fulfill both of those roles. It's important that a church leader stand on the foundation of God's word so he knows how to administer God's word. You know, I can take God's word and I can throw it like a dagger at you. I can point all your faults out and all your failures and I can make you walk out of here feeling like this big and you're just a terrible Christian. It's not what it's for. I have to be careful how the word goes out. It has to be able to convict in a loving way, letting the Holy Spirit handle your heart. But at the same time, it has to be able to encourage you and be able to lift you up and, and accomplish what God has called you to do. In verse 10, 
he continues for the reason for this. He says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. This is the Judaizers. Those are Jews who become Christians. They want everybody else to follow the Jewish laws. Whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. In other words, Titus, the reason I'm telling you to appoint elders is because there's people in our home churches, in our home Bible studies, who are insubordinate, they're idle talkers, and they're deceivers, and they're doing it for dishonest gain. Notice the force whose mouths must be stopped. Tell us what you really think, Paul. Should we be nice to them? No, he says, shut their mouths up. Do not let them continue and do it using God's word. That's what he's telling them. Why, Paul? Why, why are they leading people astray? Why do we? What, what's the case here? He told you, for, they're doing this for the sake of dishonest gain. These are people who are in ministry for money. But let me just share with you, dishonest gain is certainly financial. And we all know people who, we've all seen TV shows, perhaps been to churches where it's, let me ask you this, how do you know if a pastor's in it for the money? Because that's what he always talks about. I mean, if that's what he's always talking about, that's the most important thing to him. If you're not teaching through God's word like we are expositionally, you're going to be teaching about the thing that's most important to you that week, and it's going to, if it's always money, that's what you're in it for. That's what you're doing it for. He's saying these mouths must be stopped. They're, it's for dishonest gain. But dishonest gain is not always financial. It's possible for a pastor or a leader to be in the position for dishonest gain and have nothing to do with the money. So how's that possible, Rob? Well, he wants the position. He wants the power. He wants to be recognized by the people. He wants to be somebody. So it's an emotional dishonest gain. It's a, it's, it, it, could be a, it could be a financial, but it also could be an emotional. They want that title. They want that office. They want to have authority over you. They want you to look up to them so they can direct you and tell you what to do. They don't usually last very long, but sometimes they can if they can manipulate the situation long enough. They want the position. They want the power. Let me kind of put this in a modern-day perspective. Their churches, their home Bible studies with people who are insubordinate to God's word. That means they get up and they teach and they're not sharing with you from God's word. They're filled with idle talkers. In other words, you can go hear a message and when you get to the heart of the message, when you boil it all down, when you take it to the very heart, there's no substance. It really didn't say anything. There's no value. It's just simple entertainment. You can go to a comedy show and laugh and have a good time for an hour, but it's not going to change your life. Let me share something else with you. My words aren't going to change your life. You're going to forget what I said by the time you get to the picnic today. But you're going to open this scripture five days from now, five years from now, ten years from now, and you're going to see the standards for God's leaders has not changed. You might forget how I've described it. You might forget the way I've put it. But you can go back and go, what, is it, what, is, what does God call a leader to be? And he's going, you're going to be able to turn to 1 Timothy 3. You're going to go to Titus 1. You're going to see, wow, it has not changed. God's word is the thing that will change your life. If it is not included in my message, or if there is not good, accurate exposition of God's word, you don't have a hope of being changed. You're just being entertained for an hour or 45 minutes or a half an hour or whatever time you sat there. A pastor who preaches a well-crafted three-point message that is void of accurate exposition of Scripture, it's nothing but idle talk. What, what does it accomplish? Entertain me. 
That's not what church is about. Church is about learning. It's about growing. It's about, it's about being encouraged. It's about being convicted. It's about drawing close to the Lord, being changed into his image. It's, it's not just about entertainment, sadly, in my opinion. Too many churches focus too much on entertainment. It becomes about the lights, the smoke, the worship. I'm not saying worship is bad, but it becomes more entertainment and the word of God slips to the background. And this is the power to change your life, not the entertainment. If you've heard recently, the leader of Hillsong renounced his faith and he got it back again, I think. Joshua Harris, a Christian, he lost his faith. He still hasn't got it back yet. These, it's, church is not about entertainment. It's about the truths of God's word that are never changing. Paul says the people that are engaging in this kind of stuff, he said their mouths must be stopped. Don't let it happen in your churches. And you stop them by taking the word of God, by sa- taking sound doctrine and exposing their errors. If you, for some reason, choose to go to a different church, and the pastor is not, is, 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 and you believe it's idle talk, I would encourage you, bring him to this passage of scripture. Is it, are, what, explain this to me. Do you meet these qualifications? You see, the truth is, if you look at my life and you go, well, I don't think you meet these qualifications, you're not gonna grow in this church. And I mean this as nice as possible, you might better go find a new church. Because you're gonna look at me and go, well, I can't learn from you because you're not fulfilling the godly requirements. Pastors hate to teach this section. I don't like teaching it because I know that I'm on display here. Next week, you're gonna be on display, chapter two. But this week, it's me. But if you look at that and you go, you know, I don't think you've got it, Rob. I invite you to come meet with me. But if ultimately we can't settle it, you need to go find somebody that you can learn and grow under because it won't be me. In verse 12, Paul gives an example. And he says, hey, here's a true story. He said, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, can you, like he's saying, can you believe it? This testimony is true. These false teachers, they told lies from house to house. They upset the faith of the people. Apparently, they're teaching that Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This was the reputation they had. But now they're saying this is who you will always be. It leaves no room for the transforming power of the gospel. There's no room for it. There's, there's no, you know, yes, somebody might have been a liar and a thief, but you know what? The gospel transforms people. And you don't have to forever be that liar, that alcoholic, that drunkard, that drug abuser. You can become a new creation in Christ, and you don't have to be identified your entire life by what you did wrong. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That when we, when we come to Christ, we are a new creation in him. Next, Paul tells them how to handle the problem. After you've appointed leaders, after you've found men who meet these characteristics that he's talked about, here's what I want you to do. Look there in verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Titus, I don't want you to stand around and wait quietly. I want you to do something active. I want you to rebuke them sharply. And that word for sharply, it means harshly. It means this is not Mr. Nice Guy. This is saying you are in violation of God's word. You're in violation of it. He's instructed to call them out. Have your leaders call them out. In other words, what's happening, they're at a home Bible study. Someone's standing up and they're teaching something that's wrong, not in accordance with God's word. Paul's saying, call them out right there. Call them out. Get up there. Not Open up God's word. Show them the truth of God's word and say that's not what they're teaching. Call them out. Let it happen. How many times would someone do that? Once. They'd never come back to that Bible study again. But that wasn't Paul's motive. That wasn't Paul's desire. I want you to see what his desire is. He says call them out 
why? That they may be sound in the faith. In other words, I want you to call them out, not to drive them out, but I want you to change their heart. Because Paul knows that God's word has the power to change someone's heart. And if they're teaching it, they probably believe it. Maybe they're even being deceived. He goes, but if you show them in God's word, we're not trying to get rid of them. We want to change their heart so they can minister alongside of us. I like that. Because so often in Christianity, we want to drive someone out perhaps that we don't like or we don't agree with. And Paul says, no, no, we're not driving them out. Our goal here is that we may change their heart, that they may be sound in the faith. Look at verse 15 as we finish up this chapter. (coughs) He said, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You've heard me talk about taking the scripture out of context. Verse 15 is a verse that I have heard taken out of context. There have been Christians over the years who have used this verse to say, if we are saved by grace, it doesn't make any difference how I live my life. We can go ahead and keep right on sinning because to the pure, all things are pure. To the, I'm, since I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. The only way that you could get that definition, that meaning out of that verse is if that's the only verse in this book that you read which is what happens. They take it out of context. They don't have it in the proper context. They don't really see the whole order of what Paul's writing. And when you see it in context, you realize that has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about Judaizers. He's talking about people, them trying to put them back under the Jewish faith. He's talking, and, and what he's specifically talking about is the eating of different kinds of meat. They were trying to be religious and be holy by their diets and what they would eat. Paul is literally saying, Whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, it doesn't affect your relationship with the Lord. If you're pure, you're pure. If you're not pure, you're not pure. So if you're a Christian and you want to eat this kind of meat or that kind of meat, fine, go ahead and eat it. If you're not a Christian, don't think you're being any more spiritual because you're following a strict diet and not, and not doing certain things. And, and think, don't, don't think that's somehow getting you in a better relationship with the Lord. And many times these legalistic, and I'll even say cultish types of behavior, types of people... They profess to know God. They, they, they give the appearance of religion. But when you look at their life, there's no evidence of their faith. There's no evidence of what they really believe. They deny him in their lifestyles. The word Paul used to describe these kinds of people, he says, abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They're strong words, aren't they? This is what he says. These are the people who are teaching falsely. They're leading people astray. They're doing it for filthy gain or for lucre, whether it be a position or whether it be money. They're taking people away from God. They're trying to bring people back under the bondage of legalism. And Paul says they're abominable. They're disobedient. They're not even qualified to lead. They shouldn't even be in that position. He says, Titus, I want you to point them out. Don't let them get away with it. Don't let it continue. Stop it. Because Paul knows if we don't deal with it with the word of God now, they're going to destroy the people's lives. There are certain characteristics that church leaders should display in their lives. And these are them. Along with what Paul says in another way he puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As a church leader or for any church leader, if we don't have these characteristics... If we don't meet these characteristics, then we don't meet the qualifications for the position that we hold. 
and we should rightfully step down. But let me again say, church leaders are not perfect. They make mistakes. When you look at their life as a circumstance, and you can't look at what they did 10 years ago. You've got to look at where are they at right now? Do they meet these qualifications? Because I can tell you there's a time in my life where I didn't meet these qualifications. I, I'd, I'd say, no, I'm not qualified to be a pastor. But there came a time as I matured with the Lord that I did meet these qualifications. The Lord put the calling on my life. And before I would raise my hand and say, okay, Lord, I'll be a pastor, I had to look at these qualifications. And I asked my wife, guys, if you want to know how you're doing, ask her. She'll tell you. Where am I at with this? Do I, do, do I, do I, am I qualified? Biblically, do I meet those qualifications? You see, it's not always what we think of ourselves. It's what other people see us as well. If you're going to lead people, they have to see that you meet these things. Well, this week has been all about me and being a leader and being a pastor. Next week, as we begin chapter 2, it's all about you. <laughs> because Paul's instructions to Timothy will shift from church leadership to the people in the church. He's going to tell women how they should act. He's going to tell men how they should act. He's going to tell us how we should act as bond servants, or shall I say, employees. Paul's not done instructing Titus, but he's also going to be instructing the church as a whole. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to study your word together. What a blessing it is. Father, as we read what the Christian life looks like, as we read and we know and we become more like you, Lord, we need your help. We need the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but we also need the strength of the Holy Spirit to overcome some of these things. For Lord, as I look at this list in my own life, I didn't always meet it. But yet you were faithful, and you'll be faithful to bring us to whatever you've called us to. So Lord, I just pray that you would empower us, encourage us, convict us. Lord, if, it's, if you want us to get baptized today, convict us on that. Just let, let us know. You speak to us in that still, small voice. There's someone that needs to. Let them know, Lord. May they be faithful. May they walk in accordance to your will. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that it doesn't change. Thank you that we have it written down for us. Lord, now may you help us live it out. May we never compromise it. In Jesus' name, amen.